right. So when you think about the restaurant industry, there's the big players and there's the small players. And both of them kind of operate a bit differently in terms of how concepts are going back to business in the era of the coronavirus. My name is Paul Barron, and this is The Barron Report. Today on our show, we're going to drill down into this with an experienced veteran that's running a handful of small concepts out of Dallas, Texas. I've got Jason Morgan, the CEO of Bella Green and the original Shop Chop Shop. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. All right. So, Jason, let's just jump right into it. Let's talk a little bit first about Bella Green and the original Chop Shop. How many units are you currently at? Tell us a little bit about your brand. Yes, sir. Original Chop Shop is a fast casual brand, better for you. Uh, founded in Phoenix, uh, we bought the brand in July 2016 uh, with three units, and we've since grown that to 14 units uh, in the last four years. We have eight units in the Phoenix area. We have six units in Dallas. And of the 14 units, we have 13 of those 14 open uh, today. Uh, Bella Green okay. is a uh, fast casual better for you concept as well, a little more chef-driven in terms of what we're doing from a food standpoint. Uh, we bought that concept also in 2016 in October. Uh, we started with five units there, and then we have grown that to nine units, uh, six in Houston and three in Dallas. Uh, both concepts are fast casual, meaning that we're, we're uh, ordering at the counter, we're bringing the food to the table, uh, and both concepts skew uh, better for you. Yeah. All right. So you're competing in the categories of like the modern markets, the lemonades of the world, uh, in that for our viewers to kind of understand the concept of Bella Green. I have not been in one of your restaurants, so I've definitely got to try one soon when I'm ne in Texas again. Yeah, they're both highly differentiated. On the chop shop side, where we're doing protein bowls is the, is the main item that we serve. It's about 35% of the mix, but we combine that with a pretty heavy beverage component. So we're doing okay. juice, we're doing acai bowls, we're doing protein shakes. And so you see a lot of concepts that are juice concepts, and you see a lot of concepts that are bowl concepts. Uh, but we've been able to put those two, sort of mash them together to have something that's that's really unique that I haven't really seen anywhere else across the country. Now, yeah. On the green side, uh, it's a it's a basically a casual dining uh, restaurant in a, in a fast casual box. So large menu, appetizers, desserts, uh, salads, pizza, burgers, tacos, uh, all with a chef flair. And then we're also we're, we're known because we have uh, we can meet most dietary restrictions. So right. plus gluten-free items on the menu and, and you taste them and not realize they're gluten-free. So we're, we're doing something very Interesting. different there as well. Very cool. All right. So you're in the great state of Texas. I'm kind of curious, have you guys got any indicators as to when potentially you could see a reopening strategy for your state? No, we haven't. Uh, nothing definitive at this point. Uh, in the last week or so, I think Governor Abbott has relaxed some of the restrictions on retail establishments, uh, allowing... Uh, you know, people to go back to those locations to pick up items and a few other uh, services, businesses to open up. Uh, we're expecting that, that the next round will be some type of opening of, of dining rooms in Texas uh, to a limited capacity where, where social distancing is observed, maybe fewer seats. We're not really sure what it's like today, but that, that's what we're hoping happens in the next two weeks to 30 days. Yeah. How big was the takeout and delivery portion of your business uh, pre-pandemic? Yeah. So on the top shop side, we had about 55% of the sales going out of the restaurant uh, to be eaten outside of the restaurant. So that was third-party delivery. That was uh, to-go, call-in, catering. Uh, and then on the Bella Green side, probably closer to 30 to 35% of the sales were off-premise. And that was pre 
pre-coronavirus. All right. So the chop shop had quite a bit of off-premise sales. Um, all right. So this is really up your, you know, up your alley in terms of being able to deal with customers in a much more limited service environment. What other kinds of things, when you look at a small brand versus a big brand, I know your background was Zoe's. Um, so you've had kind of that experience of growing a, a smaller brand into a national chain. With where you are now in running uh, a concept like the two concepts that you have there in Texas, uh, which are much much smaller, how how is that different in terms of how you guys are addressing some of the changes that you're having to make as a brand uh, under these circumstances? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest uh, the biggest thing that benefits us is that we are small, and that makes us pretty nimble. Uh, we're able to to do things in a, in a very short period of time. Uh, there's very few decision makers. Uh, the team is extremely flat in terms of I've got 13 people that are that are running two brands that are that are growth brands, and so we we're all sitting in an open space. We're we're six feet apart for social distancing, and uh, we're we're going uh, as fast as we can. Uh, we're, we're not afraid to make mistakes, and so we we go we implement things. We may not test them as much as my IT guy would like, but uh, but we we get things out there and we we fix them or redirect course if needed. Interesting. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the menu uh, development th- that your brand has um, kind of implemented. What kind of new things are you bringing to the market that really kind of makes a difference in, in essentially enabling your business to potentially hold on and make it through uh, this crisis? Yeah, so one of the things we did very early on is we, uh, we, we don't do much discounting in our brands. Our, our customer isn't, isn't looking for discounts, but uh, we went out with some pretty heavy discounting in terms of uh, driving people to online sales for us. And so we offered free delivery. Uh, we also offered a $5 off for, for uh, in-store pickup and for call-in. So we, we wanted to get people an incentive to, to use uh, our online ordering platform uh, and, and to, to sort of get them bringing uh, the sales through that, those channels. Uh, we then went and we, we bundled some items together. So at, at Bella Green, for example, we, uh, we created a, a taco pack where it's like a family meal. We had five family meals, I believe, that we rolled out there. Uh, everything from fajitas to, uh, to enchiladas to a, a whole roasted chicken. Um, we're doing it at a pretty affordable uh, rate. Uh, it uh, basically feeds four to, to six people, and it's for $40. Um, yeah. The margins aren't great for us, but it's – Again, it's just uh, finding a way to create uh, consumer goodwill during this time. Something very similar on the Chop Shop side, we rolled out a bundle pack there uh, where we're doing, you know, basically four meals, four sides for $40. Uh, and uh, we also had rolled out groceries at each of the brands. We're not, we're not selling a lot of the groceries, but uh, we were very early on and within a couple of days, uh, you know, post the restrictions placed on the dining rooms, we were able to, uh, to roll that out. So we're selling eggs. Uh, we're selling bread, we're selling rice, uh, we're selling sliced meats, cheeses. We package some of that together in, in sandwich bundles as well. And so for folks that, that don't want to go to the grocery store or the grocery store's out on certain things, we've been able to replace that for our consumers. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, you know, and we're seeing a lot of those types of operational, um, you know, elements that are coming to fruit here with many brands uh, out there. When you look at, at kind of more innovative approaches to reaching uh, consumers, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about pop-ups, virtual, uh, brandless concepts. What are your thoughts on how those could be implemented in terms of uh, how brands like your size could be able to take advantage? Yeah, so we haven't, we haven't done a lot of pop-ups from, from our standpoint, but we, we've limited sort of customer and, and interaction. 
Uh, I've seen other brands take the approach where they, they've got vending machines, where they, they put in, in lobbies of office buildings. Uh, and so for us, um, we, we haven't done much of that to date. How about uh, virtual kitchens for you? Any plans for uh, potentially taking the brand out into the virtual sphere of food service? No, at this point, no. Uh, we, we had talked uh, before uh, COVID-19 about uh, trying to do some virtual kitchens in, in downtown locations. Uh, we, we'd love to have an operation in downtown Phoenix. We'd love to have an operation in downtown Dallas. You know, one of the challenges from a financial standpoint in those markets is that it's a five-day, primarily lunch and catering only. And so right. rents are really high. And, and so we talked previously about having uh, the ability to do pickup delivery uh, out of a storefront that uh, basically building our own ghost kitchen uh, with a storefront that uh, we can yeah. service a guest. Yeah. So as a brand your size, um, you know, you, you're probably dealing with a different type of forecast model and in, in potentially how you're going to deal with the way consumers return to the restaurant industry. I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts, your own team, as you guys are building and getting ready for the reopening, what are your thoughts on how consumers are going to respond in coming back to dine-in restaurants? Yes, I'm optimistic. Uh, you know, I, I think the recovery you know, could be... Uh, prolonged a bit through the rest of the year, but I'm optimistic by the time we get to January of 2021 that we're we're somewhat back to normal from a sales standpoint. Uh, and from a, being overly optimistic, I'm hoping that there's pent up demand and and we see sales come back quicker than that. But we're prepared to uh, sort of survive until until January on, on reduced sales. Interesting. So you feel like this is a 2020 is kind of a almost a write-off in essence. If you can make it through 2020 and get past this, the restaurant industry could recorrect in 2021. I think that's right. And, and I think there's going to be winners and losers in this as well. I mean, one of the things that we've been very conscious of uh, from day one is, is what can we do during this time period to move the business forward? Like what right. what initiatives can we put in place? What, what can we, how can we be better? Uh, when when this is all said and done, and and so some of the things we've done there, and, and this goes back to being a small company and being able to just spool things up really quickly. Uh, we rolled out curbside delivery in a matter of forty eight hours. Uh, we probably would have taken a lot longer to do that if we hadn't been forced to to make those moves a little quicker. Yeah, um, we uh, you know we we made an aggressive push on our side to uh, to drive people away from third-party delivery, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, and, and use our platform. We're very fortunate. Interesting. Uh, we okay. have low installed in, in both of our brands, uh, allowing us to to basically take direct online ordering and, and save the commission fee that's uh, being charged by those third-party delivery guys. So um, our messaging has been has been very direct and very strong without ordering direct from us. We we right. want people to uh, to order from, from us going forward. And then, you know, they, we also are – in a matter of a couple of weeks, we're going to have internal drivers. Uh, we we testing a good for you. Uh, we're testing a system that uh, we're hopefully have rolled out here tomorrow. Uh, that's going to allow us to use our internal staff to to deliver food and yet another benefit to ordering directly through uh, through us. And so we're, we're we're doing a lot of things that um, that, that I think uh, will help us going forward. At Chop Shop, yeah. thing we're, we're we're doing is we've been working on a loyalty program there. Uh, it's something that the consumer has asked for for a long time, uh, but it's also going to play into, you know, contactless payment. Uh, so you'll be able to to order through the through the app. We'll be able to to pay in store 
through the app, you'll be able to load money on the app. So you basically take the entire transaction towards contactless. And so that's going to help us. We, we hope to have that in place a couple of weeks after dining rooms open back up. Very cool. Well, you just hit on two things. I think brands of your size, really brands of any size, but uh, especially emerging brands should be doing. And that is getting out of the third party delivery. I'm a big proponent of that. It's a terrible deal for everybody, including even third party delivery companies. Uh, they can't make money doing this logistically. And uh, and also it's good for the customer. I'm glad. I'm so glad to hear a brand your size is going after delivery. Uh, direct. That is going to be huge. I think that's going to be a big trend. And contactless payment, that's by far the future in terms of technology. So you guys are right on track there. Great. Uh, kudos to what you're doing there. I love to, to hear those kinds of success stories in, uh, in operations. Any other thing, when you look at, at consumers, all right, so we've got a very unusual situation with consumers right now, how they're going to be responding to restaurants. Um, we just did a poll here on, on Foodable to talk about, and mostly it was consumer uh, based on, on how consumers would utilize restaurants. I was surprised to see almost 70% of consumers were going to use restaurants in ways that they had not been using them before, mostly takeout, uh, going into restaurants that had very controlled seating, uh, and then really doing a lot more, um, you know, a lot more food away from the restaurant. Do you feel that restaurant operators in the future, if you look down the, the road, maybe two, three, five years down, do you think we could get to a 70 or 80% off-premises number for some concepts? I think for certain concepts, that's definitely possible. Like for, for our chop shop concept, I could easily see that growing from the 55% it was pre-COVID-19 to, to 70%. Um, for other concepts like my Bella Green concept, it's more of a dining experience. Uh, the food does travel well. We do a large number of, of takeout there, but I see ultimately people come back into restaurants. Yeah, doing more experiential. All right, so last question I have, and that's in reference to kind of where the industry is is on terms of the PPP. Uh, we had a chance to ch chat with you just pre. Uh, you guys got lucky and got a PPP. How do you guys plan to use that? What's the model uh, of where a small brand like you would be implementing a program like what the PPP is providing? Yeah, so this is another benefit of being small is that we have the ability to to move quickly and, and, and it's going to be imperative to move quickly because the, the way the PPP works is that the, the eight-week count starts the day you get the money. And so yeah. the forgiveness uh, clock starts ticking. And so what we were able to do within a matter of 24 hours is get uh, two of our Bella Green locations back open. And so okay. we opened uh, two of the five restaurants in total that we closed uh, between the two brands. Uh, we've also brought team members back. Uh, we, we believe that uh, you know, the intent of the PPP was to you know, re reemploy or bring back people that were, were working for you prior. Uh, and so we've done that. Uh, we've got people almost back to their, their hours that they were working pre-COVID-19. Uh, pre, pre uh, and so we do have a lot of extra people sitting in the stores. Uh, and so we've, we've been very cautious of what are we going to have those folks do. And so we, we've done things like the internal drivers that we mentioned earlier, uh, we've also uh, set up curbside uh, tents and tables outside to, to staff there. We've got people on the street uh, with signs saying we're open. Uh, we've got extra cleaning happening in the restaurants. Uh, we've got people passing out flyers. And so we, we found things for people to do uh, during these eight weeks so we could keep them employed. Um, mm -hmm. there's a, it's an interesting mathematical problem, I think, when you look at how the forgiveness works. 
Uh, the right. 75% wrinkle that was thrown in at the last minute uh, makes it so that uh, you, you've got to spend 75% of the funds that you spend on payroll in order to get them forgiven. Uh, and so for every dollar you spend on payroll, you basically get another 33 cents that's forgiven uh, on, on non-payroll items like rent. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a point where, from a math standpoint, that if you were going to run your restaurants at break even and you weren't going to bring people back, you were going to get to the point where you were spending payroll dollars that weren't forgiven. And so by spending a little bit more dollars in payroll, you'll have more forgiven and you'll be able to spend more money that's forgiven on those, those rent utilities pieces. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what we're doing. We're, we're bringing yeah. people back to work. Uh, we're, we're trying to maximize the forgiveness. Uh, and we think we, if we, if we done the math right, we think we, we end up in a better spot than just banking the money and having a loan uh, going forward. Yeah, I just saw the numbers from the SBA uh, this morning in terms of the percentage that affected the restaurant and lodging industry, which I, I would assume is, let's assume that it's uh, around 50% each. And when restaurants and lodging were number five on the list, really surprised me. And only about four to 5% of the total PPP funding went into it. Uh, so this that was kind of a, a big surprise to me because I feel like the restaurant industry is the number one sector that needed the help the most. Uh, and in fact, it did not turn out that way in terms of where the funds went to. Um, hopefully for operators that are out there watching this, you're on the second phase, which may align better for you because it's going to be closer to your reopening date, potentially with uh, the likes of uh, cities and, and states like um, Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee, which have already started the movement toward opening next week. If that were the case, that's that could align really well with the forgiveness program. Wouldn't you agree? I totally agree. And, and the, the lack of guidance to date on the forgiveness piece is, is a little bit concerning because the eight weeks have started. And so yeah. we're, we're making decisions and uh, that, that we don't know uh, are 100% correct. Uh, but but we feel like we need to be going in a direction, and if we get guidance in a week or two weeks, we'll we'll change course if we need to. But uh, right now, we're we're trying to maximize that that amount of forgiveness and, and be able to pay our folks and and be able to pay our our landlords uh, with whatever money's left over from the PPP money. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, Jason, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, when I get back to my home state of Texas, I definitely got to stop into a couple of your concepts. Great. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. So for the for all of you listening in, whether you're over on the podcast right now, maybe you're listening in on iTunes or Spotify, make sure and drop us a note. That's how we get feedback from you. We love to hear that. And the number one thing I'm going to ask for all of our audience to do, and that is to reach out to your state restaurant associations and also to the National Restaurant Association. You have got to get your voice heard so that we can get some sort of urgency in this industry to be able to deal with the situation. Um, I talk to so many experts here and operators here each week, and the concern is that this is going to be a much longer recovery. As you just heard from Jason, he's looking into 2021 before we could see normalcy in the restaurant industry. You guys need to prepare for this. And if it means putting pressure on your state associations and your national associations to help your businesses get prepared, at least the government getting into a scenario where they're aware of just how urgent this industry is in, in terms of its current condition financially, and also employing uh, people, as you, as you heard right there from, uh, from Jason. It's, it's an opportunity, I think, for us to be the number one employer in the country 
And if we can maintain that, and I say number one, meaning the number one public employer outside of medical, this is a huge opportunity for the restaurant industry to come back, maybe be stronger than ever, but it's going to take all of you to get out there and really get in the face of your representatives and of your associations to make sure you're heard. Um, We're going to catch more content like this here on the show this week. If you have an idea, make sure and send it to producer at foodabletv.com. We'll catch you next time right here on The Barron Report.